Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the third episode of the Venn Diagram. Um, <laughs> I'm getting so giddy right now. I have my most favorite person, um, Ali. Okay, so the backstory is I met her at UT. Um, I toured UT as a prospective student, and um, she was my tour guide. Weirdly knew someone from my school. Um, we just kind of clicked, and then I am at GW. She's at UT, but I still we keep in touch. She's the best. Um, and so we actually had a, a meetup in quarantine, a social distance like park meetup, uh, where we talked for four literal hours <laughs> about all these things. Um, and I was just at that moment, my radio show was still a thought, and I was like, potentially can you please come on my show? And she was like, yes, of course. So here we are, we're here today. Um, I have so much to talk about with her. We have a lot to discuss. So Ali, you wanna go ahead and introduce yourself and give us the whole thing? Yeah, sure. So hello everybody. Thank you for that uh, intro. I really appreciate it. And it really is like a crazy story, kind of like ironic in some ways because you did go on a tour. And usually when I give people tours, I'm like, I'm never gonna see them again. This isn't gonna, right. you know. And this won't matter, like, if I mess up, whatever, um, or if you I remember their up. names or not. You did not miss. It was so good. <laughs> you sold I'm glad. Uh, but then, yeah, I remember you DMing me, and I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I was so happy that you got something out of that. Uh, this was pre-COVID, by the way, when you could go on campus, and you could mm -hmm. tour, and you could talk to people and hug them. Oh, my God. Anyway, but um, so, yeah, long story short, it really was a roundabout way of us becoming friends, and I'm so glad because we are just, even though in different spheres, I feel like we grow very similarly or our paths are growing together. So that's exciting. But um, what about me? Well, my full name is Alexandra Roman. Uh, I go by Ali, A-L-E, not Ale. <laughs> to clarify, that's a common mistake. Um, what else? I go to the University of Texas. I am triple majoring in government. Yeah, you hear that study. triple majoring. Who triple majors? Yeah, I know that's disgusting. I know y'all are on the phone thinking like, she's disgusting and annoying. And I agree, <laughs> you're not wrong. I'm not, I am annoying, but I promise you it's not as gross as it seems. It just like, my thought is if this institution is going to take my money, mm -hmm. I better get everything I can out of it. Exactly. So, so anyway, I'm government, women, yeah, government, women and gender studies and Mexican-American and Latino studies are what I'm studying. I absolutely love it. They just happen to go well with what I care about. So yeah, I have my pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm from San Antonio, Texas. But yeah, is that it? I don't know if there's anything else I should add. Yeah, no, you nailed all of it in the first try. Um, okay, so I want to ask you kind of just check in how you're doing. How is everything with the pandemic? You are a student, I believe. Are you on campus right now? Are you in Austin? I'm in Austin, yeah, okay. off, living kind of, off campus. Perfect. Talk about that experience to me. Um, you know, what is it like being a student in the pandemic? How does it feel? What have you seen yourself go through challenges? Give me the rundown. Right. Um, oh my God, it was so difficult. I feel like for a lot of students in general, it was really hard making that transition. But what really made me realize how hard it was, was when we, when Texas just had like snow vid, the snowstorm last week, <laughs> it like made me realize how hard and that all the things I went through when the pandemic started, which is what I was experiencing with that whole week that we had off for the weather, which was like, I felt really lazy, unmotivated, and uh, quite honestly, like academics, when the world is shifting and going through as much pain as we have been, didn't seem important. So I didn't focus on it. Right. And I got a lot of grace, which I really appreciate from my professors. Most of them were ethnic studies professors who gave me that grace. Like, hey, 
we're going to switch what we're doing now that we're teaching in a pandemic or we're going to cut off uh, different assignments because we just had a weather storm and you've never experienced that. And there are still people who don't have water and all of those things, right? So it's been tiring and exhausting. And I don't think like I'm alone in that feeling. I think a lot of students can relate to that. Um, and in fact, now I, nowadays, because I still am a tour guide, I find myself like letting incoming students know, if you don't want to do this, if you don't want to be a student in a pandemic, you don't have to. Like That's so important. This trajectory of we're going to graduate from high school in four years and then go to college, one, is a privilege. Not everybody has that. But also, it's not, you have forever to go to college. It's not a timeline that has to be fixed on this one set point and end goal. And so it's exhausting and also making people realize, I think what's important, what do I want to do with my time now? And every day there are new updates, new people <laughs> that make me angry. <laughs> Just recently, if you are new to the news uh -huh. uh, of Texas, I don't know where your listeners are coming from. I'm going to think, right. I'm going to say they're global. Oh, oh. Okay. I'm going to manifest that for you. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, so if you don't know, uh, Texas, not only do we ride horses, but we also don't wear masks all of a sudden. <laughs> and our governor, Greg Abbott, decided, okay, <laughs> COVID's gone. Right. Happy Texas Independence Day. He's like, I saw this meme um, and people were like, yeah, Greg Abbott got his two doses of vaccine. And he's like, uh, sorry about y'all or something like that <laughs> right, right. Uh, like okay now y'all survive on your own because I'm fine but yeah so now Texas is deciding not to wear mask anymore and I just got another notification that Alabama is doing the same thing mm. and then what else um yeah just like all these men in power are just annoying one um, but they're just making decisions that are not that are violent, that are violent, sim simply put. I don't want to touch on that too long just because I'll get angry, but yeah, that's right. the story. <laughs> I like angry, angry alley though. We definitely hit that when we were at the park together. We were just firing off all the cylinders. Um, okay, so you brought up Snowvid. I like that way of talking about it. You talk about kind of like what that experience was like. Um, I am in DC and so I had my own snow episode. It was not quite what we saw in Texas. Mm -hmm. We were ready for it. Um, and I think, you know, our politicians maybe handled it slightly better, but um, just talk to me about what that was, how it was unexpected. Um, what is what is mutual aid? How are people helping? Because all of my mm -hmm. Instagram stories with the whole social media activism blow up, I was seeing Texas everywhere. And I was like, this is really bizarre because I'm from the Woodlands, I'm from Houston. And these people are like posting about Houston with mutual aid. Right. So, can you talk about what that is like? Um, how is it seeing everyone across the country and across the world kind of focus on Texas uh, and fixate all of their attention there? Right. So a lot of thoughts. So you might have to recenter uh, me for the questions, but what basically happened, which this might be repetitive to your Texas listeners, is the whole state of Texas experience in unprecedented, I freaking hate that word, but that's what it is. <laughs> it was, has never happened before the snowstorm. Um, and I mean, it is because of climate change. Like, I don't know what people are saying, but Texas is usually, you know, 80, sometimes 90 degree, sometimes 100 degree weather, at least in San Antonio for summer. And then in the winter, it has never been like, it's never been 10 below and that's basically what happened in February and so everything shut down because one Texas doesn't have the infrastructure to deal with snow to deal with the cold 
because to have that infrastructure means that you spend more money and we are capitalistic queens, kings, I'm going to say kings. We are capitalistic kings, um, you know, the governor and people who don't want to spend that money on those things because it doesn't happen in Texas. Well, anyway, um, so that happened. Everything shut down. And because we don't have that infrastructure, that means there were homes that didn't have any water, uh, heating, uh, energy, what is it called? Electricity. Yeah, so basically anything like that, all of those resources to stay warm and be comfortable, I guess, also were just gone. And then come to find out that all the people who sit on Texas's energy board thingamajiggy, um, it has a name, but I don't, I'm not going to look it up. So <laughs> insert here, uh, ECOT, what is it called? E-R-C-O-T. But um so basically all the people who sit on that board, people found out that none of them were from Texas, one. They're people who didn't live in the state and they were making decisions prior to the snowstorm with very little uh, regard. So there were memos that came out basically like when they had their recent meeting before the snowstorm, they didn't really touch on it. They didn't really care. They didn't really prepare for what was going to happen, even though they were being told like, this is going to happen. What are we going to do with the energy, uh, the electricity that's being given to all Texas residents? Because also uh, Texas is on its own energy grid because of God knows what reason. Like I'm sure there's even more disgusting reasons and so if we shut down we can't get power from anywhere else because it's like our own entity i think it's also because of like money reasons i'm not too up in the atom with that so yeah so long story short that's what happened people lost i mean they're still dealing with having a loss of power going on i'm seeing water yeah it's insane and then we're kind so, of just a little bit like flint in the sense of like mm-hmm. moved on as a nation but these like small cities and states are like we're still experiencing this what do you want us to do like you don't right people forget them. about them right so and the, and also like if we think about that comparison with flint we're forgetting about the marginalized communities we're forgetting about the communities that are not white very simply because even in austin so i was in austin during the snow store posting pictures of how downtown Austin, which is very affluent, had compl- all their lights were on. All their lights were on like big companies, the Frost Bank, which nobody works in that Frost Bank tower downtown, but it was completely lit up. And so it shows one side of all this energy being used and produced downtown. And the other side is East Austin, which if you're not familiar with the gentrification history of Austin, basically communities were displaced because of I-35 and moved to East Austin. And they're also communities of color and they had no electricity completely dark and so there's an image like juxtaposing downtown all lit up in east austin completely dark um which again just speaks to yeah we're going to forget about communities that don't look like us because we don't care right. you, you know unless it's why people knocking at our doors telling us that they need something nobody's going to listen but because of that because the government wasn't doing anything it was also those communities of color that started rallying together through mutual aid which mutual aid is not i mean was not rather snowvid was not the first time mutual aid was used like mutual aid is a very common um idea and way of organizing to support your community it's something my ancestors being mexican-american have done for my like my entire life it's what we continue to do so it's not a novel idea it's actually quite legendary um but so that's what was happening different community groups student groups you name it 
were gathering together and spending their money, using their energy, um, their labor to go get different materials for houseless populations. They were trying to get them per warm clothes and like middens and water, all of those things and just helping one another. So if it's, I had people in some of my circles be like, hey, I have water still and I have electricity. Whoever needs to come, go ahead and come, like wear a mask, whatever, like all this PPE protocol, but also if you need this, I'm here. And that's basically what mutual aid is, I think, in a in a nutshell, is like showing up for people, not because you have to, because but because there's that common sense of humanity that you share. And so we're going to do this because you matter and I matter and our communities are going to benefit off of our common care for one another. So that yeah. is one, that's how I look at it personally. And that's what oh, happened. Well yeah. And, yeah. I think we can get really lost in the infographics, although they're very informative and I appreciate them until I get a lot of my news, but I wanted to get your take on it. And as someone who's physically there, who experienced it, because I was, I felt so removed from my own community. I was like, I'm in, I'm in DC. I'm not like even close right. to my mom. <laughs> I was affected by my mom being like, you can't call me. I need my phone for other things right now. Like I need mm-hmm. a battery. And I was like, what the heck? Call me mom. Um, <laughs> so I, I appreciate that perspective. Okay, I'm trying to think, switching gears slightly um, to academics. You mentioned your love for your triple major. Talk me through why you chose these majors. Um, Why are you passionate about it? What is the end goal for you? Uh, Oh, that's a big big question. question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. Dissect it any any way you want. Um, Well, I think it starts with like recognizing your, um, the theme of your podcast, which is like the Venn diagram. And we've had this conversation before where you called it, or can you explain again what the idea is with the Venn diagram that you had? Yeah, the concept is, oh, look at you interviewing me, Allie. (laughs) Um, No, the concept is just kind of feeling like I didn't have a certain space. I was in the intersection of two circles. And so um, by my, um, not assimilation, but by my um, me being included in one circle, kind of excluded me from another circle. So um, I think I just was in this blended middle intersection where people didn't quite mm-hmm. find me, um, you know, digestible in one area. And so I was just right. here. I was like, where do you want me? Like you, and I think you have this eloquent, perfect quote. I don't know if you can say it right now, but the whole like tea at the table situation where it's like, you want me there, but do what can I bring for you? So I kind of was just, I'm in this weird middle space and I'm trying to navigate. And I realize yeah. a lot of people are in the same space too, maybe not as like a South Asian, second gen Muslim American, but as, you know, the other intersection of their cultures. I think it's so exactly. much more common, even for people who are first, like, it's just, it's way more common than I ever thought. And that's why I want to make this because I feel like it's just a very relatable experience. Right. And so um, I think that's part of the reason why to give the viewers, the viewers, as if we're being on YouTube, to right. give the listeners one day, uh, to give the listeners some context. That's like one of the reasons why I think you made that connection. Like, oh, Ali could be on this podcast because I had told you that, um, and I promise eventually this will get to like the end goal career. But I have also felt similar to this gray area, but in my world or in like my field of study, it's known as the borderlands. So this term, the borderlands is coined by Gloria Anzaldúa, who is a feminist Chicana scholar. And so she basically describes the borderlands as similar to uh, this gray space, right? But she says that it's the in-between for her and her personal experience. It's the in-between of being Mexican. So being on those borderlands because there are lands that are on the border of uh, 
the United States and Mexico, but she's there physically, mentally, emotionally in those borderlands where she doesn't have a claim or she doesn't feel like she has a claim to Mexico for her own reasons and also society's reasons. And she also doesn't have a claim to America. And so when we were talking, I had like told you, you know, this is the a type of term for it. I'm sure there's more terms for it, but it's this idea. And like you said, like being digestible, it's this idea that if you are in the borderlands, you are erased. If you're in the gray space, you're erased. Your identity without a label is illegitimate because if people cannot label you, then they can't understand you and they can't digest you. So because we are mixed individuals who are ever, all human beings are like this, right? But I would say because we are ever evolving, ever growing human beings, it's hard for us to be labeled in an identity that makes sense of that. And so we get erased and it then causes a lot of problems in life. Um, But so also to, I, I want to provide better context to this idea of borderlands. Also, if people are familiar with the colonias, they are basically a part neighborhoods in the United States that are unclaimed by, like they're unclaimed territory and they're quote unquote, the slums located by Mexico and the US. And so that's also what I think about when I think about the borderlands is a quite literal space where people do not care enough to provide resources like either state, Mexico doesn't care, the United States, um, it's unincorporated land, low income, nobody cares. And it's these communities fostering and working off of mutual aid to make sure they exist. So I say all those things because my passion and the end goal is basically to incorporate and push for the incorporation of ethnic studies in K through 12 curriculum. And the reason for that is because of how these different identities, whether mixed or not, right? they are erased, they are kept in the borderlands in academia. Um, I personally have experienced my identities being erased in public school. I went to public school my whole life, except for the very short period that I was in pre-K and my mom taught at a private school. And then when she stopped teaching, I couldn't go there for free anymore. Um, But then after that, my whole entire academic career has been in public school. And I personally, think that there are a lot of faults with all different type of academic um, institutions, whether that's charter school, private or public, but I have an affinity towards public school. Mm. But that being said, um, I think about the borderlands a lot in that work because the thing about what's happening right now in the curriculum, whether you recognize it or not, is it is completely aimed at assimilating people. So one of the reasons why you might have not been able to recognize your identity or I either is because it doesn't show up in the big areas of our life, which is is in the classroom. Like how many years do we spend in a classroom being told that white is right and I'm going to be oppressed without being told I'm going to be oppressed, right? It's very subtle subliminal messaging that informs my understanding of who I am and how I position myself in the world. Like all of that is coming from the classroom, whether you recognize it or not. And so the goal of ethnic studies is to basically pick up the history um, that we know as like Mexican, Hispanic people or African-American, black people. If that's what ethnic studies includes, is that history that we know to be true to ourselves, but that is simply just not included in the curriculum for obvious reasons of colonization. So I feel like it can get very tricky to talk about this because these are uh, very limited words for 
example, if you do not know what colonization means, if you don't know what assimilation means, it's really hard to understand the importance of this. So very simply, like I don't want to, I want to recognize my privilege in being in academia and knowing what those words mean so that listeners don't feel like, you know, any type of way for not knowing what I say, that's completely fine and understandable. Uh, the higher institution works in that way to make sure that I am alien, I'm using alienating language, but I just want to make it more simple and direct and say that basically right now there's violence happening when you don't show students of color that their own history, ethnic studies are showing them that on that own history. Um, and yeah, just want to take that moment to simplify it because I could definitely go into a more big words, whatever. Yeah. But yeah. No, well said. I think uh, we talked about that as well. We were like, what I was thinking back, when have I really learned about myself? And also who was teaching me about myself too, right? Like there were these, who I yeah. love, I loved my teachers, but there were these white women or white men, ex like explaining my own history, right? And it also was in situations of oppression, you know, like I wasn't finding myself not as the oppressor, but you know what I mean? I wasn't finding mm -hmm. people like me in position of power and like be innovators. Like I think I think about something like the Renaissance, right? Like this whole European blow up, it was great, right? A lot of these things were created by smaller marginalized groups in Asia as well and were coined by Europe, right? Like I just, but I never knew that. I was like, oh yes, the Renaissance, love it. Like yeah. all these things. Um, and I think there's so much beauty and empowerment in hearing your own story in history books. And I just think there is a lack of that. And I think, and I went to a private school, right? Where that probably, you know, it was promoted to be like a more uh, individualized learning environment and like you feel more cared for. But with that, like, where is the care coming from? You know, so I love that right. that's something you want to focus on because I would, I would hope for like my kids or for my kids' kids to have that and, and from the beginning be like, yeah, of course I know my whole history. I, I learned it in school yesterday. Um, and not mm -hmm. from, on not the burden of like parents or family having to do that too. Cause there's some, there's beauty in that as well, but also beauty in everyone learning together. Like your white students also being like, oh yeah, that did happen. Right. You know? And I think about like right now with everything we've experienced as far as people waking up to racism, that's happened forever. Yeah, and yeah. My, I strongly believe like things like racism, sexism, um, phobias of any kind, those are not things you are born with. You learn that. And a lot of times you are learning it through what you have direct access to, which is the classroom. If the classroom is constantly showing you a white hetero male who is in positions of power and uses violence, like how can you tell me that you're going to know anything different? Right. Because that's what you're being told. That's what you're being fed. Uh, these ideas of hating different identities that are not white, you don't just get born with them, right? Like people learn these from what they're told is right. And that's like literally everything in the classroom is like, yeah, Christopher Columbus colonized us and that was okay because God, glory and gold. Mm. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. I, it's just so mind boggling to me because right, I care, but also I just constantly think about, well, who wins when I don't learn about myself? Yeah. Who's in control, right? It's a whole thing. I could continue to go on. Um, but yeah, so that's what I'm going to try to do. Yeah. <laughs> I am working in different ways currently and with different organizations who are already doing the work uh, to make sure that ethnic studies is being implemented and being required in K through 12. So I will say that we are on the way. Mm. It's already, uh, what's it called? 
there's already been legislation that's passed for ethnic studies to be taught in K through 12. Now we're in the process of basically wow. making it a requirement. So it's not a, I may teach it, I may not. Um, but yeah, I think this work is really important because the last thing I'll say on this is that when we change a curriculum, when we change what people and students are learning, because eventually students become human beings that function in society, we change a collective consciousness. We are changing the way people think and look at one another and understand different identities and are accepting and are questioning, right? All of these things. You just offer a world of freedom through education. And that's always been pushed through us, like to us, that education is where you're going to gain amazing knowledge to be free. But how free is that knowledge if one we have to pay for it don't get me started but two if the knowledge i'm learning has nothing to do with me as an individual but how i should assimilate to the majority of the world right but yeah no very well said i i will say like i didn't realize until after we spoke um i kind of was working backwards mentally i was like oh wait and that happened and that happened and that happened because i've always been taught that education is power and that's one thing that can never be taken from me right like i can have nothing but i have my education um and that there's so much wealth mm -hmm. in that um but then i was like it depends on what i'm learning right like what is the wealth of my own learning like is it exactly you know, in high school what was i gaining from this was it a positive thing and, and so i love the way you deconstruct it and you find like the errors and i think it's important to challenge it like we both have privilege from going to higher learning from having all the mm -hmm. years of schooling realizing like we can do better you know and there are people that don't even can't even imagine going to the type of schools and exactly and, and i think there's so much beauty in that but also like it's important for us to continue to, to challenge the system so very good um okay so we both have a lot of opinions lord knows that you know it's a, <laughs> it's a whole thing um how do you have you ever felt silenced before when you come with these ideas um when people ask for your opinion kind of talk me through what it's like at a school like ut that is humongous but also just such a I mean, it's a great institution. I loved UT when I toured it. Um, but what have been some roadblocks for you when people ask you for your help, for advice? Um, and maybe mm -hmm. when you're asking questions, kind of how do you navigate that? I think it's a very slippery slope. I think also thinking about higher education institutions in general most likely they're not going to be made for you unless you're white and a male um and so it's hard because i think first thinking about the institution as a whole before you are in it before you apply and you're like yeah i'm a ut student or x y and z student you love it you're excited because college is exciting and you don't really think about the bureaucratic structures that might impede on that experience but those are the things that I'm thinking about right now. Mm -hmm. um, to give some context, something that recently happened with the university that's personally been on my mind is we have a song called The Eyes of Texas, which is racist. And if you want to know why it's racist, I would just Google why is the <laughs> UT song racist. And so because of that, students have decided not to sing it. Okay, no big deal. Students aren't going to sing it. Um, they protested and they tried to make it a point to let our president know why it's racist and why they should remove the song altogether, but he didn't listen, as per usual, whatever. It became an issue, though, when athletes who were standing on the field and still playing during COVID 
uh, weren't standing during the song. So basically they would go to the locker room and it eventually got to the point where there was nobody on the field, the song was singing and it was just the coaches and maybe the head football player. And donors who have made it very clear to the university that they have a lot of money and power got very upset and sent emails to the University of Texas alumni uh, organization and all of those emails, by the way, are online. If you want to read how horrific the things they were saying are, I would highly recommend you read to understand what's going on. But basically, to very shorten it, they were using like derogatory terms, slurs, very uh, divisive language, if you will, to make their point that if the University of Texas doesn't let so-and-so groups do or sing the song, like, they don't make them sing the song, they're going to pull their millions of dollars, and just a whole slew of emails getting the point across that I have money, and I have, because of that, I have power, and so if you don't listen to me, I'm going to use that power violently against you, and first of all, I am confused as to why the University of Texas, which has the second largest endowment in the country, like, we are so rich, it's ridiculous. And if you don't believe, if you don't know what an endowment is, that's totally fine. You know we're rich because our president of a public institution is making millions of dollars every paycheck. Like that is his budget, like millions, one point something. Anyway, so that is an issue. But so yeah, I'm like, how does an institution that's so rich even have to listen to millionaire donors and look for them for money? I don't know how that adds up, but Basically, the emails were super revealing, and to say that Hartzell's our president is basically going to listen to them and do something about the song because he's scared of the pushback from the rich donors. Uh, I bring that up to position like, okay, I was really excited to go to the school, and I do love the communities and the education that I've received. The reason it's a slippery slope is because I personally wouldn't change anything as far as where I go to school, what I study, whatever, I feel very comfortable in my path and where I'm supposed to be. But at the same time, I can also question the institution I'm a part of. And that is pretty much what's gonna happen the rest of my life. I already know it. I'm gonna be a part of institutions that do not make room for me. And I might enjoy being a part of them, but I can still question them. And that's basically what I think about when I think about being restricted. It's this idea of, oh, well, I, I love this so much. And I think about it, um, in terms of like, okay, you know, the university is oppressing me in some ways because of the way it functions and the way it's not made for me, but I'm still in love with my oppressor. Like I'm still in love with this idea of it. And it's so complicated and it's so deeply intersectional. And I can't even begin to try to understand all the things um, that come with being a part of it. So the way I navigate it is being able to find those bubbles where I'm able to ask questions and able not to be restrictive. Yeah. That's the university as a whole. I will say um, one more thing as far as like interacting with people. UT is known for being very liberal. I think it's the spaces you're in. It can also be very conservative or whatever. In those spaces where I have no idea what I'm going to get, uh, I've told you this before, but it's a matter of, if you're asking me a question, and this is in general, right, whether in UT or in the real world, where I can be a little bit more aggressive than the average person, uh, I will admit, but in those instances where people are asking me a question or asking me to show up a certain way, I get confused because me personally, 
my identity of being a um, Hispanic woman, being a Chicana, that goes with me everywhere. So when people ask me to show up, but to leave my identity at the door, it's mm-hmm. very confusing because at the same time, they're like, but we want you to be authentic. We want you to be right. your funny, bubbly self. And I'm like, all of those things that you told me to leave at the door is what makes me that. The reason I'm passionate, the reason I'm bubbly, the reason I show up this way is because of the way my ancestors, my culture has influenced and informed that knowledge, informed this human being you're seeing right here, right? Like Alexandra Roman um, doesn't exist unless X, Y, and Z is incorporated with her. And also the personal is just political constantly. So if you're telling someone to show up as a human being, but you're like, don't be a political, then mm-hmm. what do you want? How do you want them to show up then? Like I'm, I'm perplexed. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fit your narrative because I only know one way to show up. Right. But that's no, not that's, digestible. Okay. Literally. No, same. I think it can be so confining to be like, yeah, be this version of yourself here. Be this. Fr-. And that's, that is what code switching is. I didn't even open that can of mm. work yet on the show, but that is like, and I find myself um, subconsciously code switching to a point where I, I had a moment a f- few weeks ago where I was like, what are you? Like, I literally stopped my exam myself. Just like, really? <laughs> yeah. It was a very weird out of, like a little dissociative where I was like, now you're noticing when it's happening because mm. I think I've just grown in confidence with my identity as well and I'm like you don't have to be this version of yourself with this person you're Alina Fayez in whatever space you take up um, right I think just like you said like that's just inherently a part of who I am and I think in high school I I found myself hiding it not in a negative way honestly I think I just didn't really know who I was I was discovering as I go and at GW I'm like yes I'm a South Asian female you know, I am someone who's like Muslim American. I'm proud of it. Right. Um, but I still find like discomfort in some spaces where I'm like, oh, wait, this is this what you expected from me? Like, is this what you wanted? Um, and I, I can't live my life like that. You can't live your life for other people. You got to live it for yourself. And what they want should be authentically you. So I do like how you put that very well said. Apps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, okay. So I have so many things I want to kind of debrief with you too. But okay. Kind of the beginning, yeah. We we mentioned this in the beginning of it too. College during a pandemic. Um, can you talk me through best practices for coping with this? Um, obvious. I think I forget that I'm in a pandemic. Like I'm like, oh wait, this is fully yeah. Happening. Um, because I think we've adjusted as as a nation, and we've had the privilege to adjust, right? Like it's been okay for me. Like I'm in DC right now. I'm doing what I need to do. You're in Austin doing what you need to do. Um, talk me through how you deal with it, how you cope your bad days, how are you getting through it, your good days, what are, what's making them good? Kind of give me the wrap up. Um, I will say I have so many privileges, I think, and one, like when the pandemic hit and the reason I'm able to be in Austin right now is because I have a full ride scholarship that pays for it. Not everybody yes. has that. Yes, she does. But not, that is not my humble brag, but like I want to give context as to like without, I'm indebted to that scholarship without it. I would not be able to live here. I would have to live in San Antonio. um, And like my worries would just be amplified. So I already have financial issues, but that's just going to be amplified without a scholarship. So I have that privilege, right? That I am able to live in Austin. It is really expensive anywhere, but especially near the university. Um, And I think that was one last thing that I was worried about as far as the pandemic because of that, my worries were centered more on my mental and physical being. So I just 
naturally uh, exist with anxiety. Anxiety and me, we're BFFs. And so when the pandemic came, she just came knocking on my door and said, wake up, listen right. to me all the time. Oh, goodness. Um, and so if you're somebody listening who also has um, interacts with anxiety, then you know what that's like. And something that I really sat down with myself and realized is I need to go to therapy, not just because we're in a pandemic right now, but because all of this time alone and this quiet time has amplified all the things that happened way before the pandemic, but still live with me and are still with me every single day and my thoughts, whatever, but I just never gave them time to uh, address them. So I don't say I have best practices. I will just say that I started therapy and I absolutely enjoyed it. Fun fact, therapy was actually free during the first year of the uh, the pandemic. I don't know if it's still free. So I would just like, if you're interested in therapy, maybe you can get it for free. I highly recommend. And so since then, I have gone every single week. I actually have therapy today. What a great... You me in before. I'm so I did. <laughs> Um, I've been going every single week uh, up till now. So since last semester, almost two full semesters, and I find it extremely helpful, especially not just because um, of my own traumas and things that I go through, but also recognizing that it is 10 times, how do people say it? 10 more times, 10 times more difficult, I think whatever you know what I mean (laughs) I got you I see you uh it's 10 times more difficult now for us to navigate our daily lives and our daily traumas when we are in a pandemic when we're only looking at a screen and maybe you live alone for your own safety I live alone and so I really find it helpful to just be able to talk to somebody every single week and just tap into the tools that I already have to take care of myself Mm -hmm. to make that whole transition whether that's learning alone or just still being with limited people interaction just make that transition a lot easier so therapy is something I did other than therapy um I meditate I journal I read I focus on things that make me feel full and okay in that moment because every day is a different day and we might need new things but I try to stay in constant conversation with myself to know what does Allie need today and how am I feeling? What caused me to feel this way? And how do I mediate that? Because I've also been that person that gets angry or gets sad and then moves on. And that just stays underneath my skin in an unhealthy way. Mm-hmm. Especially with the pandemic, I don't have much time to interact with people to either mitigate my stress or my anxieties, whatever. And so just spending a lot of time with myself is how I do that. Um, yeah, I don't know if that was like, no. sorry if that was boring. Okay, y'all, no, I'm just talking about myself not at this point. The point. No, I want you to speak to personal growth and kind of on that note, I asked my guest this week the same question as we wrap up, um, but I'm wondering, what would you tell your younger self, younger Allie, looking up with you at you with bright eyes? What would you tell her? Advice, um, tips, anything. You can take this anywhere you want. I just want to know um, upon reflection what you would tell her. Um, oh, yikes. (laughs) I know, it's a big question. I think just knowing that everything is going to work out and it's going to be okay. I know that's really cheesy people. (laughs) Like, honestly, at the point that I am now and the type of person I am, which stresses about things, overthinks, has anxiety, you name it. Um, I think it's helpful to tell somebody 
like that, that things are going to work out and that there is a reason that this is happening right now or that you're going through this stage in life. I think that I just have a deep faith and that I'm where I'm supposed to be and things are working out the way they're supposed to. And so knowing that you have no control is also a really great thing to note because if you think you have control, you become more entrenched in this idea that you can do something about it. And we really can't. We're just living. If this pandemic has taught us anything, we live our days, but anything can change the next day, right? I can decide what I'm going to do today, but tomorrow I can still decide, but the context might look a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would say. I think just being able to allow the coming and going of the world and the way that we grow as human beings. Um, Yeah.
Okay, my guy, I'm 